Jonah this morning. It's in the Old Testament, and if you can find Matthew, back up about five or six books. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and that should get you there. And while you're turning there, show you a, a motivational poster that uh, just, these, these things just seem to be everywhere. Have you seen these? I was recently, I think, in a Wendy's and saw one of these on the way to the men's washroom. This particular one says, Achievement. It's hard to fail, but it's worse never to have tried. Now, posters like this, you know, they're designed uh, to help people do their very, very, very very best. That's that's why they're called motivational posters. There was a journalist, in fact, uh, name is Allison Ward, writing for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram who wanted to know if these things really work. Do they really accomplish anything, or do they just make us want to strangle the manager who put this on, on, on the wall? Well, as it turns out, uh, some researchers have uh, actually at the University of Glasgow in Scotland discovered that when they place one of these motivational posters, for example, there was an escalator on one side and a set of stairs on the other side, and when people saw the motivational poster, they were more inclined to take the stairs. So I guess they do work. In fact, they even concluded, uh, placed at the point of decision, they said, based on a number of these kinds of studies, motivational posters do have a positive effect. Um, in fact, the positive effect lasts for a number of weeks after the poster is taken away, uh, and it gradually dies off. I have to confess to you, though, that uh, as motivational as these posters may be, the ones I like are a little bit different. Uh, uh, my favorites are from a group that's called Despair Incorporated. You may have seen this on the web. Uh, and they call them demotivational posters. Maybe that tells you a little bit about me. I uh, hope so. Uh, with a subtitle that reads, Inspiration for Real People. Now, hold on. Here's, here's just a sampling of the kinds of things that uh, are in these demotivational posters. For example, the first one, Defeat. Uh, it says, For every winner, there are dozens of losers, and odds are you're one of them. Okay, you like these too, don't you? The next one, I really like this one. Mediocrity takes a lot less time, it says, and most people won't notice the difference until it's way too late. How about ineptitude? If you can't learn to do something well, well, learn to enjoy doing it poorly. That's me in golf. Failure. If at first you don't succeed, well, failure may just be your lifestyle. And then this last one. Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Now think about that for a second. Because we're going to come to the book of Jonah. I've chosen this particular group of posters that focus on defeat and mistakes to introduce uh, the topic uh, of the value of failure. Writing for the business community, a writer a number of years ago, his name is Tom Peters, in a book called uh, Thriving on Chaos, once said this. He said, there's little more important today than failure. We need a lot more of it, he says, and we need it faster. 
Now, he's put this all together in sort of a logical syllogism, and it goes something like this. To survive, he says, first, we need to innovate in every area, and we need to do it faster. Second point, whenever you do something new, whenever you innovate, it means that you're going to do something that's untested, untried. You haven't been down this trail before. And three, well, whenever you do something new and you have to do it quickly, that's a sure prescription for failure. And so his conclusion then is we need to make a commitment to failure. Now, that's, that's kind of interesting. What Peter calls this process of learning through failures that teach us something, uh, he calls them excellent mistakes, and then he even wants to refer to them as failing forward. Failing forward. Failing forward. What a fascinating concept. And I believe it has direct application to you and me in our Christian lives, so much so, in fact, that I think there's an entire book in the Bible that's devoted to the topic of failure. And it's the book of Jonah. Jonah never succeeds. Right to the end of the book, Jonah is a failure. So I want you to turn there with me this morning and see if there are some things that we can learn from this negative example that we can turn into positive illustrations for us that we can learn in our own Christian life to fail forward in our world. So four lessons we all need to learn about spiritual failure. Lesson number one, I'm not going to take the time to read the chapter. You've been hearing the story of Jonah since you were in Sunday school. So let me just pick pieces of this as I go through and kind of highlight it. And then this afternoon or tomorrow sometime next week, you go ahead and read through the rest of the book and see if this doesn't ring true for you. We'll get enough of the story to put those pieces together. But the first piece that I find in this story is in uh, verse 1 and then verse 3. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, it's at this point in every other prophecy in the Old Testament that you see the prophet then rose up in obedience to the Lord, follows God's will, does what God asked him to do. But if you look at verse 3, you see a really interesting statement here, but Jonah ran away. Now, I'm going to make a point about this, and the point is going to sound really quite simple at first, but it's just this. God is in control of everything over all his creation. God is, to use the big, long theological word, sovereign. God is in control. But guess what? He lets you and me say no. Now, just to give you an idea of how much uh, Jonah wanted to say no, let me show you a map here. Uh, I don't know if you can see just exactly what's going on here, but right up in the right-hand corner, right at the very right edge, you can see the top city up there is Nineveh. And then if you look right around into the center of the map, you can spot Joppa. And where Jonah headed was exactly in the other direction from Nineveh. He headed over to a place called Tarshish. 
And we're not exactly sure where that is. It may be in a place somewhere in Spain. Jonah went exactly the opposite direction that God had sent him. Now, later on, we'll take a look at chapter 4, verse 2, which is going to tell us Jonah's reason for doing that and has something to do with the fact that God is compassionate and Jonah didn't want him to be. But the point of these particular verses is that he can do this. He can say no to God. And it's important, is a very important theological point. And let me see if I can establish it with you this morning by telling you a story. I have uh, at home in my library a book that I was uh, required to read in college on the philosophy of religion. And one of the chapters in that book is on the doctrine of fate. And in that chapter, there's a story called the story of Osmo. And uh, the, the, the person who wrote this particular book is trying to help us to understand the doctrine of fate. So let me tell you the story. Osmo, it seems, uh, was a man who was browsing in the public library one day. And he found this old dusty book, and he saw that the title of it was The Life of Osmo. Well, now that's curious, he thought. That's my name. And so he reaches up and pulls the book off the shelf, and looks like nobody had read it. I mean, how many Osmos are there that would be interested in a book like this? So he blows the dust off of it, and he opens it up, and out of curiosity begins to read this book from page one. It starts, Osmo is born in Fairview Lakes Medical Center in Wyoming, Minnesota, on June the 6th, 1980, and after nearly losing his life from an attack of pneumonia at the age of five, he enrolled in the Chisago Lakes Primary School. Well, Osmo turned pale. The book nearly fell from his hands. He was born on June 6, 1980. He was born in the Fairview Lakes Medical Center in Wyoming. He almost died from pneumonia when he was five years old. And he was enrolled in the Chisago Lakes Elementary School. What a coincidence, he thought. So, he starts to read on. There are only 29 chapters in the book. And as he reads chapter by chapter, every single chapter explains a portion of his life. And he makes his way up to chapter 26. And it says, Osmo discovers a strange book in the library. And it tells him about his whole life. Well, he's stunned. In fact, he's just a little bit afraid. Wouldn't you be? Let me ask you a question this morning. Would you read on? Would you read the last three chapters? Now, I'd probably stand there hoping there were 72 more chapters. I don't know about you. Three more chapters of this book. Well, Osmo mustered up all the boldness and courage he could, and he read on. And he read to the very last sentence, which ended like this. And Osmo... Having taken Northwest Flight 569 from O'Hare, perishes when the aircraft crashes on the runway, landing in Minneapolis. And that was the end of the book. And in fact, that's how Osmo died. Now, the philosopher who wrote this chapter remembers arguing for fatalism. By the way, there are some religions that teach fatalism. 
Islam, for example, has a form of fatalistic God is in control. The Hindus sort of translate karma into what goes around comes around, sort of a fatalistic view of life. And so this philosopher religion says, well, the fatalist conclusion is, we shall say, therefore, of whatever happens, that it is going to be that way. And there's nothing we can do to change that. Now, is that right? We Christians believe that God is in control. And we believe He's sovereign over all the universe. But do we believe in fatalism like Osmo? Well, you know, that's been a debated point in Christian circles for just a whole, whole long time. But even the most outspoken of those who talk about the sovereignty of God, and I must confess to you, I'm one of those, even the most outspoken who believe that God is in control have always believed that while God rules the universe, He also leaves a place in the universe for free choice. In fact, Westminster Confession, big, strong, important, impactful confession of faith that holds to a real strong doctrinaire view of the sovereignty of God, has this. Now listen carefully. God makes use of means. God makes use of means. That is to say, the Westminster Confession says, although He causes all things. Well, there's the sovereignty, isn't it? Although He causes all things to come to pass. Now listen. He orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. That's you and me. That's us. So God's sovereignty is so large that He can work through my freedom. He can move His sovereignty in, around, through, under, over, so that while I'm perfectly free, there's no contradiction, no bouncing off of one another. God's sovereignty allows the freedom and the room for my particular choices. In fact, the Westminster Confession goes on to say, he, he works all things according to the nature of second causes. Now listen, some things necessarily, necessity, some things freely, free will. Some things accidentally, nobody could predict it was going to happen. God is in so control that He can use second causes. Some things of necessity, like the weather patterns. Some things freely, like you and me. Some things just accidentally, nobody can trace the cause. That's a Christian view of divine sovereignty. Now, I think the book of Jonah comes pretty close to telling us that. So, for example, I can spot that there are actually five servants in the book of Jonah. Now, think with me as you've remembered your story here. Servant number one, Jonah runs, and so the book of Jonah says that God hurls a wind toward Jonah and his shipmates. God sent that wind. And the wind obeyed. Now, did it obey freely, accidentally, of necessity? Well, all we know is it obeyed. Then there's this whale that God appointed. 
said God, you know, set this particular being, this whale. By the way, the biblical expression isn't whale. And there's an interesting aside here that uh, where Jonah was headed was Nineveh. One of the gods they worshipped was the god of the deep, the god of the ocean. And it was a large, large sea beast. And it could well be that God is making a point by creating or appointing just this particular large beast. But this beast, this whale, obeys. Then there's a weed in the last part of the book of Jonah. Jonah preaches to, you know, the Ninevites, and, and they repent. And Jonah gets angry, and he goes out, and he's so angry, he sits out there and waits to see what's going to happen next. And this weed grows up to kind of give him some shade. God sent that weed, we're told. God provided that weed, and it obeyed. And then here's one of my little favorite characters. There's this little worm. I almost think of a cartoon little worm that crawled up this weed and God is looking for a worm. He says, who, who will go for me? And this little worm says, here am I, send me the first missionary little worm. And he crawls up and he penetrates that weed and he kills it and just makes Jonah mad again. So the worm, it obeys. Now, my guess is none of those had the same kind of thing we talk about when we talk about human freedom. But then we come to Jonah and Jonah says, no. He heads in the other direction. And that's, that's the first point I see in this little book. The first lesson from Jonah's failure is that God's sovereignty, God's control, God's power is so big that it can allow me to say no to Him without God losing control. Now that's a pretty important point for Christians to grasp. And so far as I know, no other religion... No other philosophy tries to hold those things in just the same kind of tension that Christians do. And as a matter of fact, it's a big deal because it allows the doctrine of Christian judgment to mean something. In fact, when C.S. Lewis says that the gates of hell are locked only from the inside, Our no matters. That's a part of the point. That's a part of the point. In fact, that's the second point. So look with me now at chapter 1, verse 3, and then look down at verse 4. Verse 3 says, But Jonah, and then verse 4 actually in the original language says, But Yahweh, but God. Now here you have this budding contest outbutting one another. But Jonah, but God, it's that second but that ought to send red flags and sirens blaring. Something's going on here, and the something that's going on is simply this. I've talked about other religions that uh, don't quite understand how fatalism works. Now let me tell you about the Hindus who argue that a man can enter the water and never cause a ripple. Now, that's what a lot of people would like to believe today. That our actions have no consequences. At least, no consequences that last. But the second point here is that when Christians enter the water, or what Christians believe is that when anyone enters the water, they cause ripples that not only spread on through this life, but that ripple right on out into eternity. The things you and I do literally matter. They are important. 
We are significant people in God's world. According to the Bible, our actions count. So, I was looking through Jonah. I read this uh, little thing in a study that said in 1967, the wreckage of an ancient Greek cargo ship was found uh, near Cyprus. Now, we don't have any of the kinds of ships that Jonah was on. This is about as close as we can come to that. This cargo ship included 400 large jars of wine, 10,000 almonds on board, and over 25 millstones. And the evidence seems to indicate that uh, the ancient ship had a crew of about four people and it was steered by one person with two oars at the, at the back of the ship. That was probably about the size of the ship Jonah was on. Probably not more than eight to ten people on board this ship. But it caused me to think. Now, Jonah's running away from God. He has this ability to say no. What are going to be some of the ripples some of the consequences, and I started asking myself the question, there is this ship. What about the ship, Jonah? When you do this thing, you know, that you decide you're going to step outside of God's will and nobody's going to be hurt, well, Jonah, what about the ship? The modern equivalent of the cost to build Jonah's ship today would be something like $20 million. There's $20 million worth of ship that's impacted by Jonah's decision. What about the crew? Well, I've said there may be five to eight people on board. Did these people have families? Did they have children? Did they have lives? Did they have things they wanted to accomplish? What about the crew, Jonah? What about the crew? You've put this whole crew at risk. Don't tell me your actions don't matter. Don't tell me when you sin it doesn't count. What about the crew, Jonah? What about the cargo? Aboard the ship, the modern equivalent of the cargo that Jonah's ship would probably have been covering was something like 5 to $50 million, depending on what was on board the ship. They start throwing this cargo overboard. Now, you know what? Their culture wasn't so very different than our culture. Are any of you watching your IRAs and your, C- and your CDs and all these things sort of diminish today? Guess what? There were people that invested in ships in these days. So this, this, this goes overboard. This cargo goes overboard. It's not just the owner of the ship that loses money. What about the people that have invested in that ship? What about the cargo, Jonah? What about the cargo? Doesn't that count? What about Nineveh? Jonah, what about Nineveh? Now, there's a population so far as this book tells us of 120,000 people that need to hear about God. And Jonah says no to these 120,000. What about Nineveh, Jonah? What about Nineveh? What about Israel, Jonah? Now, this one may surprise you. You see, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And it's just going to happen that about 25, 30, 40 years later, after Jonah's ministry, that Assyria is going to become, a, going to undertake a series of attacks upon Israel and eventually going to haul Israel off into what's known as the first deportation, the Assyrian captivity. Now, I believe one of the reasons why Jonah was sent to Assyria is because Assyria was known as one of the cruelest nations of the world in its day. Some of the brutal stories that are told about what they did to the cities they conquered, they, by the way, invented crucifixion, 
But they didn't use this light form of crucifixion that we associate with just pounding nails in a person's hands and in a person's feet. They literally drove a stake through the center of a living person and let them writhe to death in agony. This is the kind of country that Assyria was. Now, by Jonah going there, and you remember it talks about the wickedness of these people, by Jonah going there and preaching to them, knowing full well that this is the people that's going to invade his people, could it be that God has a gracious purpose in mind to spare the people of God from those kinds of atrocities? What about Israel, Jonah? What about your own people, Jonah? And then finally, Jonah, what about you? What about Jonah? Now, it's really unfortunate. I I used to preach this sermon from the King James Bible. That tells you how old I am. used to preach this from the King James Bible. And the King James actually gave us a little bit better translation in some of these things because in verse 1, you'll notice, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And that little word in the NIV that says go, literally it's in the Hebrew, kum lake, which means arise and go. You see, God's call is always an upward call. He never leaves me where he finds me. He always makes me a better person. Theologically, the justification by faith that comes through that comes from God always leads to our sanctification, our improvement. Sanctification doesn't save me, but it's a natural result. So when I'm justified, God also wants to make me better. Arise, Jonah. Arise, he says. But in verse 3, it says, uh, Jonah instead rose up and went down. Why ya kum, why ya wrath? Jonah got up and went down. In fact, the point is made several places in this particular passage. It says, he went down to the city of Joppa. You see that in verse 3. And then again in verse 3 where it says, he went aboard the ship. Literally, it's he went down into the ship. And then in verse 5 where you see him going below deck, literally it reads, he went down into the sides of the ship. And then later on, Jonah, what should we do about you? He says, throw me down into the water. And then in chapter 2 we see him going down, 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 down to the depths of the sea. You see, whenever you say no to God, somebody is going to get hurt. People around you, loved ones, people you're not even thinking of, and you yourself are going to get hurt. You're going to, instead of being called to go up and rise, you're going to go down, down, down. Now, it won't seem that way. It won't seem that way. It'll seem perfectly natural. Your conscience will probably... Jonah slept during the storm. He didn't feel convicted. He didn't feel that God was speaking to him at all. But the entirety of his trip, because he disobeyed the Word of God, was a trip down. That's the second point. We can. We can say no to God. But whenever we do, people are going to get hurt, including ourselves. Now the third point, real quickly. The third point, I find oh, oh, in verse 3 again. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. And headed for Tarshish, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship on board that ship. Now here's the key phrase, after paying 
the fair. Now, isn't that interesting? It doesn't, you know, it costs quite a bit. Have you taken a, a, an airplane flight lately? Costs a little bit, doesn't it? Have you been on one of those cruise liners, those luxury cruise ships? Costs a little bit, doesn't it? Jonah paid something to get on board this ship. He paid it out of his own pocket. I don't know how much it cost him, but he paid. And you know what? Jonah never got where he was going. And that's the point. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the book of Jonah, says there really is a negative and a positive point in this third thing. Whenever we run from God, we never get where we think we're going, and we always pay the full price by ourselves. Now, the positive side of that, and you can see this in any number of stories in the Bible, is that whenever you go where God wants you to go, He pays the fare, and you always get where you're going. Now, I'll just tell you, one of the illustrations of that is in the Old Testament story of Moses and the birth of Moses. Remember that? The Pharaoh didn't like all the Israelis that were in the land, and so they decided to do something about it, and they started to destroy, to put to death, the male children. So Moses' mother says, I don't want this to happen to my baby boy, and they build a little bulrush ark, and put the baby in there and float it down the stream and it lands at a place where Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe. Now, while the baby's floating in the stream, the backstory is that Moses' sister, Miriam, is watching from a distance just to make sure, you know, that the baby's going to be okay. Pharaoh picks the baby up. The baby cries at just the right time. There's God's providence again. baby cries at just the right time, wins the daughter of Pharaoh's heart. She wants to adopt him. Miriam comes down and says, you know what? I know somebody that will care for this child, and that somebody happens to be the mother of the child. Now, Miriam doesn't say that. And Pharaoh's daughter hires Moses' own mother to nurse the child. You see, if you obey God, even when it seems tough, you always get where you're going. And not only does God pay the way, in the case of Moses' mother, she got a living wage for this thing, for her own child. There are a number of illustrations of that in the Old Testament. The other one that comes to my mind is the Apostle Paul. Paul, who always wanted to be a missionary to Rome, guess what? He ended up a prisoner. So that tells me the journey isn't always a pleasant one. But God took Paul to Rome. God paid the fare. God got Paul to Rome and made him a missionary from Rome. You see the point? My response to God determines both the outcome and the cost of my choice. Negatively, I can run from God. I can do that. But when I do that, I'm never going to get where I think I'm headed, and I'm going to pay full cost. On the other hand, if I will just do things God's way, I'll get exactly where He knows I should be, and He's going to pay the cost for me. That's the third point. And then fourth and quickly, my last point here, uh, is just simply this. Failure, I learned from this book, is never God's final word about sin, mistakes, failing God's will. Failure is never God's final word. Uh, Jonah's failure, for example, was not God's final word about the ship's crew. I had mentioned them early on, seven, eight people. 
Verse 16, by the way, actually does end chapter 1. Verse 17 of Jonah begins chapter 2. But coming to verse 16, three things happen to these sailors, these crew members. They're afraid three times. The first fear is when this wind is hurled at them. And according to chapter 1, verse 5, it says, All the sailors were afraid. Now, they're afraid of the natural world. Then, the next step in chapter 1, verse 10, this natural fear of theirs turns to a deeper kind of fear when Jonah tells them who he is. He says, I'm a prophet from the Hebrews. And we believe that God created all this. He created the sea and He created the land and I'm the problem. And if you were just to get rid of me, then you'd solve the problem. Well, in verse 10, it says, This terrified them. Two times they're afraid. The third time we're told they're afraid is in verse 16. And it's after the storm stops. After Jonah has been thrown overboard and everything is at peace. Now all of a sudden, says in verse 16, At this the men greatly feared Yahweh, the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. Now, one commentator says that that order is very important. They offered a sacrifice first and made vows later, and they did this after the storm was over. I don't believe that this was one of those uh, foxhole conversions. I think these men had been afraid of the storm. I think they'd been afraid of the foreign God that had brought the storm. And now all of a sudden, when there's peace, when there's nothing for them to be afraid of, nothing outwardly at least, they suddenly it suddenly dawns on them, hey, we've just encountered not a pretend God, not a book God, not a TV God, not one we can manipulate in the movies. All of a sudden, we've encountered the real God, and this terrified them. And I believe that ship's crew became followers of Yahweh. Jonah's failure was not the final word over the ship's crew. Second thing, now you'll have to turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. Jonah's failure wasn't uh, God's final word over Jonah. I I love this passage. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to, and you know what I would almost expect to see here? Micah. Jonah had blown it. Then the word of the Lord came to Micah or Habakkuk or Hosea or some other prophet. I mean, Jonah, you're through. You blew it. You're done. But that's not what it says, is it? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now I have to tell you that compared to the crew members, Jonah comes off pretty badly in this story. There's nothing that's appealing in the book of Jonah to me about Jonah. He is not a hero. He doesn't even end up a hero. He still ends up whining and complaining to God about God's mercy and compassion. And you know what? There are a lot of people today that look at us in the church and they talk about those hypocrites in the church and they're exactly right. Here we are. Here we are. And you know, if you knew my life at any depth, you would know that I'm a sinner. And you know I blow it every day. And you know I don't belong among the saints. Nor do you. Nor do any of us. 
We are a hospital. We are not that righteous group of people that we often like to think that we are. We're Jonah's. We make mistakes. We blow it. We blow it consistently. That's why 1 John 1.9 is in the Bible. If we confess our sins, well, why would we have to confess them if we don't commit them? He's faithful and righteous to forgive us. Our... And God comes to Jim a second time. And God comes to Mary a second time. And God comes to Bob a second time. And God comes to Sue a second time. God comes a second time. Someone once said, you know, if the God of the Bible didn't exist, I'd want to invent Him. If the God of the Bible didn't exist, I'd want to invent Him. This is the kind of God I want to serve. He has compassion. He gets it. He understands it, that I'm going to blow it. J. Vernon McGee was once asked, well, what if Jonah had said no again? And he answered, well, I think God would have provided a second fish. Maybe. Maybe not. You know, it's not wise to presume upon the grace of God. But I do know that there are second chances often enough, and we read the passage about discipline this morning, that God both disciplines and brings me along in His kingdom. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that God is the God of second chances. And then third and finally, Jonah's failure wasn't God's final word for the city of Nineveh. (laughs) If you turn to chapter 4, verse 10 of Jonah... Actually, before you do that, look again at verse three, verse two, chapter three, verse two. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time: Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Now that's different than Jonas's first call. There he said, "Go to the city of Nineveh and preach against the city." And now he gives an indication that he's going to modify or adjust the message. Now this is what I found in my own ministry when I was a young man. I used to be able to preach fire and brimstone. used to be able to speak harshly to God's people because I hadn't experienced enough of life. I hadn't failed enough on my own. Now, Jonah has failed a couple of times. Now, Jonah is fitted and suited to go to the Ninevites and to begin to preach a different message to them in fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, I think that's exactly what he did. He says, uh, why is Jonah angry? He says, well, he prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, isn't this what I said you were going to do? This is why he was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from, san- from sending calamity. Jonah, God says, you've been concerned about this vine that's drying up over your head. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. Stop there. It says, who can't tell their right hand from their left. Now, that doesn't just mean they were morally without a compass. That may mean their children. There were 120,000 children. They hadn't reached the point of accountability, we would call. There's some controversy over what that means. But it could be that God is concerned about not just the adult Ninevites, but the children. And then he says in verse 10, and their cattle as well. Cattle too? God's not just concerned about me, but he's concerned about ecology? Where did that come from? Cattle too? 
God is concerned about the city of Nineveh. He's concerned about the world today. Us, them, the animals, all of it. It all belongs to him. He's concerned about it all. I am so glad that Jonah's failure wasn't the final word about Nineveh. So, what have we learned from Jonah's negative example this morning that helps us to be better disciples? Well, real quickly, it's this. I can say no to God. That's a liberty that God has given me. But when I do, when I run from God, I will never get where I think I'm going. And there's always going to be a price to be paid. Third, people are likely to get hurt by my negative decisions, and almost certainly I am. And finally, though there will surely be consequences that I and others may have to suffer because of my actions, failure is never God's final word about sin. God's final word is always about grace and salvation and a second chance. What a great, great God we serve. And we wouldn't have seen that if it hadn't been for Jonah's excellent mistakes. I invite you to stand with me this morning. Would you do that? I want to invite you to close with me in a word of prayer. And I'm going to pray this in phrases. I'm not going to embarrass you and ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. But just in the privacy of your own thought world, if you feel comfortable praying this prayer, would you repeat it after me? in the privacy of your own thought world. So, let's go to prayer. God, I will obey you when you call. I will not be like Jonah. But if I fail, would you quickly remind me of the negative consequences this will bring? And would you never allow me to fail in such a way that that becomes the final word over my life. I ask it in Jesus' name.